I'm Sarah Clatterbuck, and you're listening to the Progression Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. I'm Neil, co-founder and CTO here at Progression, and today I'm with Sarah Clatterbuck. Sarah's had an extraordinary career spending time at Apple, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and now she's a director of engineering at Google. She spent a huge amount of time as an engineering leader, and she's an absolute goldmine of information. In this conversation, we cover some really interesting topics. What it's like to see an engineering team grow from 300 to 3,000, what works well and what doesn't work well for early stage startups rolling out their first frameworks, and how frameworks can be tied to compensation, hiring, and performance. I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, on with the show. Thanks so much for taking some time out to join us on the Progression Podcast. Absolutely. So we met first at the end of last year, I think it was, on the CTO Craft panel, which was all about progression frameworks. And there was a couple of moments when we were discussing on the panel, and I just thought, there's so much more I want to unpack here. Like, this is at least one podcast episode, if not more. So I'm really, really happy that we could get you on the show and really happy that we've got some time to dig into some of the things we just covered briefly on the panel. Maybe... We could start just with a bit of background about yourself and what your experience with frameworks has been. Yeah, sure. So just a little bit about me. I am a Bay Area slash Silicon Valley native, which is a fun fact. Grew up there and started my career in 1999 at a late stage startup in the Valley. And after the whole dot-com bust, I ended up moving more towards larger companies. So I've spent time at Apple, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and I'm currently at Google working as an engineering director. I'm actually based in Zurich now for the last three years. And the team that I work with is working on the area of creator monetization for YouTube. Great. That's fascinating. So you've really sort of been around a lot of different companies and presumably seen different styles of management, different styles of handling career progression um, throughout your time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have had the chance to work on frameworks a bit in the context of my time at LinkedIn. And then now I find myself in the position to help advise various startups. And this is often one of the topics that comes up for founders when they get to say 20 odd employees and they're kind of thinking like, oh, what we should have some structure, help us think through that. So that's kind of where we end up having this conversation. And have you seen attitudes towards career progression change over the years? It feels like it's a very trendy thing to be thinking about right now of making sure that these things are all sort of documented and structured. I think it's something bigger enterprises have been doing for a while, but in the tech world, has it sort of changed the the approach towards how people think about career progression? I mean, I think it has and it hasn't. It kind of goes in waves where you get these different companies that emerge that maybe eschew the traditional philosophies in one way or another. And so I think a few years back, before they were acquired by Amazon, Zappos ran this whole holacracy experiment, which is one of the things in this vein. You know, you have companies like Spotify that on the surface appear to be employing a slightly less hierarchical approach to management, though they do still have titles. 
I've seen some companies say, well, we've gotten rid of titles, but we still have hidden levels under there. So there's been kind of different trends in and out in thinking about these things. But I think the the large companies have always had a, a certain amount of rigor around documenting and describing the different career paths and levels that exist because it helps ensure equity for all the employees that participate. Right. One place I'd like to start, and I think one of the the things that you talked about that that made me want to get it, want to do a podcast was your experience of LinkedIn. And you mentioned that when you joined, there were around 300 engineers and that grew to be 3,000 while you were there. And you sort of saw the frameworks evolve and adapt to cater that to that increase. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and sort of what were the big changes that you saw happening, especially regarding frameworks during that growth period? I think at the beginning, we had sort of the notion of a software engineering ladder, and it was pretty much just software engineer. There wasn't a lot of differentiation. There was a notion of like an engineering manager and an engineering director, but those weren't well-defined roles. And I think, I don't remember at the time how many levels existed, but I know by the time I left, we had added levels kind of at the top. And there was discussion of even adding a level at the bottom of the ladder. And then there was a lot of breaking out of specialist roles like, you know, SRE, uh, software engineer in infrastructure and tooling, front end and UI, mobile developer, networking and data center. You know, so we kind of had these other roles that kind of popped out with a bit more definition to them as time went on. And how were those changes coordinated? How does it go from a manager feeling like, hang on, we we need an extra rung in the ladder or an extra career pathway through to becoming sort of officially part of the framework? Was there a defined process around that? Was there a sort of a gatekeeper to the framework? I think the, the engineering executive team and the HR people operations team kind of own these things together as pertains to the tech team. And typically the need for a new job role or something would be emergent. So I think it would kind of start with hiring software engineers that had a bit more expertise in a particular area. And then you start to notice that, okay, now several teams across the company have sought out that same expertise and we're having trouble hiring these type of people because we don't know how to evaluate them versus just a standard software engineer. And so that's kind of the spiral that ends up with you thinking about, okay, maybe we should have a new role or a new part of our ladder here. Right. That makes sense. And was there a formal process around making sure that different voices were captured and sort of people feeling like you mentioned it was sort of the people team, the HR team that was owning it. Were they concerned that it sort of captured the voices of of the whole team or, or was it sort of created in the ivory tower and handed down? I would say it was more bottoms up than that. So I think the needs emerged bottoms up from the team or maybe from the engineering manager level. And then I think when you set out to actually build a new role ladder, then there would be 
uh, a working group that would be formed typically of the most senior engineers in that discipline that existed in the company because they might have the best kind of notion of what does a junior look like in this discipline? What does a, what does a senior look like? That sort of thing. And then there would typically be an executive sponsor who would also kind of own that with the working group kind of getting that defined and, and signed off by everyone. Right. I suppose zooming out from the framework a little bit and just thinking about a company going through that sort of growth, uh, particularly sort of an engineering team going th- from that growth of 300 to 3,000. Were there things that scaled just fine, sort of processes and structures? And were there were there other things that broke? What were sort of the big changes that had to take place to support that growth? Oh, man, I think there's a lot of things that have to change to support like a 10x growth, right? It's not just not just frameworks, I would say, how do decisions get made? That's that's something that comes up quite frequently once you introduce, you know, a staircase in your building or divisions by which you separate engineering work, this sort of thing. I think the other thing is obviously you have to build out your leadership kind of philosophy and definition and all of that. And so you probably need more than just a notion of an eng manager and an eng director, you probably need several levels of those types of people and you need to kind of understand how you're thinking about hiring or growing and evaluating that talent separately from the sort of functional expertise. And then all these things that happen in teams, you know, you have to figure out how to scale like engineering reviews, code reviews, design reviews, all of these kind of things that just happen when it's two or three or four people and you can all hover around one screen need a lot more scale when you start talking thousands of people and distributed in different geographic locations or different time zones and that sort of thing. Yeah. And you've Obviously, you mentioned you're a Silicon Valley native and you you started your career there and now you're in Switzerland. In the startup world, there can be a difference between how Silicon Valley companies think and how the rest of the world thinks. And particularly in Europe, there can be a lot less appetite for risk, perhaps thinking a bit more cautiously, a bit smaller than sort of the stereotypical Silicon Valley thinking big, celebrating failure side of things. From your experience, do you find that that extends into sort of engineering practices or engineering management practices, that there is a, a difference between engineering management in the valley versus other places? That's a good question. I mean, I've definitely observed what you said about maybe a different appetite for risk in smaller companies in the different geographies. But as for the management practice, I think it's largely the same, at least, you know, from my limited experience of being kind of in this multinational over here working, I'd say, you know, the only differences I've really observed are more the typical cultural communication patterns that you might see come up. But I haven't seen any meta patterns that I could ascribe to like a European management style versus Silicon Valley management style. You're currently at Google and um, a director of engineering. And when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned that you are not involved in creating the frameworks, but you're using sort of frameworks as part of uh, general management and 
everyday activities. One thing I'd be interested to hear a bit about, thinking about Google, and they must have more engineering disciplines than almost every other company around in terms of the sort of technologies that they use and the, the, the breadth of engineering. How's that represented in the frameworks? Is there sort of good coverage between general skills and technology specific skills? Yeah, I would say like there's sort of a meta sense in which we think about engineers, right? And what makes a good engineer, both from a technical standpoint and a behavioral standpoint. And then there's like this overlay of maybe more role specific skills that we kind of put on top of it. So, but yeah, there's kind of like this base notion of an engineering ladder that we kind of work from and then the the specialist skills are kind of layered on top. I think there's a lot of say 20 or 50 person companies will create the career framework and they'll do they'll do junior to lead or principal and they'll get to CTO and they'll write some stuff and they'll leave it there as if there's sort of nowhere else for the CTO to go but it's all relative. So I suppose that the CTO of a 30-person startup is probably somewhere in the middle at somewhere like Google, for example. So I wonder maybe, is there ever a struggle to define what those upper levels look like? Or have there been enough people in those levels that actually there's quite a good idea of what the most senior levels look like? I think in every company, there's a bit of a struggle there, right? Because at the time that you're defining the ladder, you may have some senior most reference point that at your company, as you say, might be a staff engineer at Google or something like that. So you kind of only have the reference point that you have at that point in time when you defined the ladder. And that's kind of the meta example of that role. But then I think as you get more senior folk, then you start to have a better idea of the shades of difference of those levels and like what the impact is that they're intended to have and stuff like that. But I mean, even a very large corporation might have very few, relatively speaking, say distinguished engineers or something along these lines. Maybe you just have a handful. And so defining like what that means can be difficult if you only have five or 10 data points and then defining what it means to move from principal to distinguished or something can be hard because you've only ever had these five people as reference points and they've always kind of been there and you don't really know how somebody qualifies to move from X to Y. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something that all companies struggle with, isn't it? But regardless of your size of once you sort of perhaps hit the, the bounds of your experience, it can be quite hard then to pull enough in from outside of the organization, enough knowledge to sort of create the upper level. Yeah, and I think it's also like really important to consider that each company's scale is their scale and you can't really equally compare one to another. So, you know, one company's CTO, maybe another company's senior engineer, or one company's vice president might be another company's director. And it's really kind of each company has a different idea of what they're looking for in terms of scope of leadership, scope of impact, tenure, 
expertise, etc., to qualify for any given role. And hopefully if the company has done its job well, then that's really well outlined in the interviewing process and you can get somebody, whatever they're called over here and get them properly leveled within the, the framework that your company is working in. Yeah, that's right. Switching gears a little bit to, you mentioned you were working with some startups, mentoring them, helping them and looking at frameworks with them. I suppose, do you see any common patterns of when a startup needs to adopt a framework? Do you, do you sort of see various problems manifest and you think, okay, we're missing this piece of infrastructure or have you noticed anything there? I think there's two things. One is typically when companies start, there's a desire to keep things relatively flat and egalitarian and, you know, open lines of communication. And so at some point, a company realizes, well, it, it actually may need some leadership structure. So that might be one pivot point on which they decide, okay, we need to have some sort of uh framework that describes what the distinction is between a manager leader type role and a individual contributor type role or alternatively you know they they've had some engineers working there for several years and suddenly those people go like what does it mean for me to be growing, right? Am I growing? I don't know. I've been here for three years. I've been doing, you know, more or less the same job. I feel like I'm having an impact, but like, how do I know if I'm actually getting better as an engineer? Like, how do I kind of measure myself? And so then that's another pivot point on which companies sometimes feel like, okay, we need to provide some notion of, okay, you're gaining mastery in your chosen discipline, like let's outline what that means. Because alternatively, if if the company doesn't provide any feedback into mastery, then the inevitable thing is like the person will probably look for another role somewhere so that they can feel like, okay, well, I've mastered everything I can here. Let me go over over there and maybe master something new. Right. If you can't perceive that you're progressing where you are, the next easiest way to do that is to, I suppose, do an interview and see if you qualify for that position, which is, yeah, dangerous for the, for the other company. This episode of the Progression Podcast is brought to you by Progression User Research. Here at Progression, we're on a mission to build software that helps people to grow and that they love to use. To do that, we need to talk with team members, with managers, with HR folks to really understand what they want to do and how they want to do it. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to progressionapp.com research and in return for your time, you'll receive a first edition progression t-shirt. Back to the show. Is there a type of process that you've seen has been successful in defining frameworks of going from that point where, okay, we need to do a better job of this through to having a document that can be used? Are there certain things that you've seen have been particularly effective to to go through that process with the team? One thing that I always encourage folks to think about is this is also a time that you want to reflect on like what's the culture that you want to build in your company and what are the values that you have because like the moment you put into place a career progression framework 
you basically have put in place an incentive system of sorts, right? I, I heard this from one of my former colleagues, and I think it's very true. Like who you hire, who you fire, and who you promote is your company culture to a large extent, right? And so, you know, I, I really encourage people to think about codifying their values into this framework somehow in terms of behavior. So like if you haven't given just as much thought to behaviors at every level as you have to like technical expertise at every level, then you're going to quickly find yourself in uh, potentially a bad situation as regards kind of culture and values. Yeah, I love that. When we're talking with customers, one of the things you often mention is that if you have these company values, it, it can be a great quick win to get them into the framework, but often they'll have the value and it might be, it's an exaggeration here, but it might be something as generic as thinking outside the box. But even something like that, once you're forced to think about what does thinking outside the box look like for an intern versus an executive, and how would you expect that to impact the company, it actually becomes useful then to have values like that. And you can sort of, it becomes a more realistic expectation to live the values because you have an idea of what it should look like if you're doing it well for, for your level. Yeah. Exactly. So thinking more about the sort of tactical implementation of frameworks, one topic that's top of mind at the moment and is often from when I talk to people creating frameworks, something they're really thinking about is how can they help to reduce bias and particularly unconscious bias? Because when you don't have a framework and your report asks you, what do I need to do to get a promotion or to go to the next level? It's very often sort of gut feedback that then comes out and it could be um, tailored to a particular individual and the perception of that individual may be sort of dependent on how extroverted they are or how tall they are or how their accent sounds. So on the surface of it, it would seem like documenting everything in, a, in an objective framework that's transparent would be really helpful with this. Do you have a, an opinion or a hot take on sort of unconscious bias within frameworks and whether they can be a tool to increase fairness? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you have a well-documented framework, it can really serve as a conversation piece with the employees on the team, right? And if the framework is written well, it shouldn't read like a checklist. It should read more like kind of here are the sets of behaviors that we're expecting. Here's kind of the scope of influence we're expecting. Here's the, the type of technical mastery that we're expecting. And then that can serve as kind of a way to coach someone ongoing in one-on-ones and say, you know, like, okay, you're doing great on the technical mastery front, you know, X, Y, and Z looks appropriate to your level. Maybe your scope of influence is actually starting to kind of look like this next level over here. So that's that's great. Keep doing that. And then, you know, these, these behaviors are maybe something that is holding you back because uh, here's an example where you did X and uh, what we really expect is Y kind of based on what's described at your level. So I think if it's well written, then that kind of helps eliminate these weird kind of one-off or recency biases that we see in coaching conversations. The other thing though, is that you can also scrub your framework for bias. So, you know, there's language that should not appear in 
a framework, if you ask my opinion on an engineering ladder, you know, something like Rockstar Coder would be right. something to be avoided. Or if it's a leadership ladder, you know, words like gravitas or professionalism can kind of get that bias built in. And so I, I, I would recommend kind of once you have a draft that you're thinking about to actually run it through one of these biased language analyzing tools to make sure that you don't have any inadvertent bias built in. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. On progression, we have around 40 skills that we wrote ourselves and we ran them past a diversity and inclusion consultant who's sort of a real expert on the different uses of language. And it was just so interesting to see what came back and things that we just obviously hadn't thought about. So whether it's being able to move at speed, for example, I think that was used metaphorically, but you know, you think about actually, is it about moving at speed or is it about the output or the outcome that comes from that? I think another one was something like aggressively solving problems or, or moving aggressively or something like that. And again, like maybe that's a very male skew way of defining something. Yeah, and you can you can always rephrase something in a less biased way, you know, like acts with urgency towards the highest priority problems or something like that where it's a bit more straightforward and kind of eliminates any language that might lead us to discriminate or think about certain groups of people more highly than others. And have you seen that there seems to be sort of a hypothetical risk that you could actually end up in sort of codifying bad habits or bad cultural traits. Have you seen that in practice of where a framework has sort of captured the wrong behaviours, then made that almost unarguable because it's there in the document? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what you mean by wrong. I think you can overemphasize things that then lead to anti-patterns. So... For example, if you overemphasize code ownership, for example, then you can create an anti-pattern where engineers are reluctant to share their knowledge or to work together with others to solve problems. And so that might be an example of something that you might want to watch out for or make sure that it's not at the exclusion of kind of the other the other behavior that you would want to have. Right. So it's a bit like sort of when you start measuring something, you inevitably then start managing it. You have the potential to manage it. And you know, if you're then measuring a behavior that is not helpful to encourage, there's a risk that it will actually manifest that behavior just because it's then documented as something that you're measuring. Yeah. And I mean, like the classic example of this was, I think it was Microsoft way back when was incentivizing kind of on lines of code written, right? Uh, <laughs> and we all know the heap of tech debt that, that arises if you just write more lines of code. So <laughs> these are the very kind of patterns that you want to make sure whenever you're kind of putting in place an incentive structure like a progression framework, you want to kind of make sure that it reflects where you want to be as an organization. Absolutely. One question that always comes up when I'm talking with engineering managers about frameworks is how they should think about the split between the technical skills and sort of the transferable skills or the softer skills to the point where it almost borders on sort of a learning curriculum. Like, oh, do I need to define what a level three React developer should do versus a level five AngularJS developer? What are your thoughts around that? You must have seen this problem tackled a few different times 
Is there a, a, a way of doing this right that sort of captures the, the right level of granularity? The way I personally think about it, and there are different opinions on this topic, but the way I think about it is like engineering principles first, languages second, frameworks kind of third in importance. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking for someone who has, you know, let's say solid distributed systems design skills. That's a general principle, right? And then if I was writing a job description for this role, I would probably try to avoid requiring uh, a specific language expertise like C++ or Java or whatever. I might say we use C++. If you have that, that's a nice to have. Or, you know, we use Kafka. If you have experience with that, great. But first and foremost, I'm kind of looking for the principle, both in the sort of ladder role and in how I'm thinking about hiring for it. Yeah. Out of interest, do you see that as almost a function of company size that, as I say, a thousand person plus team that you you have the flexibility and maybe the ramp up time to allow for sort of the learning of a new language versus maybe a 50 person startup where there's a need to hit the ground running? Or do you think actually the, the, the ramp up time for a new language is almost unimportant versus those top level skills? I mean, I think if the top level skills are solid, then the other things will come quickly. If you hire for a specific skill, like React or Angular or something like this, and you're not looking kind of at the core principles, then if you take away that technical decision down the road, that person may or may not be able to adapt well. Whereas if you hire a, a solid engineer with a solid grasp on several programming languages and you change from React to Angular or Angular to React or, you know, whatever, they're going to do okay in adapting to that. You know, I think actually big companies create things that make it harder to ramp up in some ways because the systems are so much more complex and there's typically a lot more kind of processes around releasing code to production and all of that so it's it's really not so much the learning a language that slows us down that's really interesting it's almost more the infrastructure and the process internally are there any pitfalls that you think companies implementing for the first time should be aware of? Do you see it sort of backfiring either entirely or certain elements of the framework or how that's been put together being counterproductive? I think trying to rush is potentially bad. So ideally, the house shouldn't be on fire when you start this exercise so that you have, let's say, order of magnitude a couple of months to think about it. I think some common pitfalls besides what I've already described about like forgetting to include behaviors in addition to skills, I would say designing your framework so that you have to retrofit levels in the middle of it in the future is potentially problematic. So leaving ambiguity and room to add levels below and above usually works well but if you try to add something in the middle let's say you start with software engineer and staff software engineer and then later you come back and say well we really want to have a senior level we're going to wedge that in there then you have this 
problem of people who are at the software engineer level going, wait, you just gave me an extra step that I have to go to demonstrate staff, or you have to have awkward conversations about like, oh, this person's currently at staff, but really they're more like a senior, we should down level them and that gets kind of ugly. So I'd say start with something relatively simple with maybe like three levels that are kind of close together and that you can expand outward from the top and the bottom rather than trying to go back and retrofit. I mean, it's not impossible to do. It's just, it's a more difficult conversation. Is there a naming convention that you like for that? Something like software engineer one, two, and three, or sort of uh, associate mid senior? Do you have any sort of personal preference? No, I mean, I think you can kind of call them whatever you want to. I think, you know, most companies don't have junior right off the bat. They, as you say, are looking for folks who can kind of hit the ground running. So you're probably not hiring people right out of school or something like that. So usually you start with software engineer, senior software engineer, and maybe manager or manager slash staff engineer. And then you can kind of add junior as time goes on and you can add the other management and more senior levels up above as time goes on. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the process of creating a framework, uh, deploying a framework, making sure that it's working for everybody. But that's just the very beginning, right? You've created that. You then actually have to use it going forwards, and you can use it in a bunch of different areas, but primarily it's going to be in hiring, in performance, promotions, and often one area that is, I think, quite scary for a lot of companies to start doing is then connecting it to compensation. So I'd love to hear a bit about your experience of dealing with those areas and maybe taking the tricky one first of how you think about frameworks and compensation. Should it always be a sort of direct connection between the levels and pay bands or do we leave space to to cater for special situations? So on the compensation front, I think there's a couple of different philosophies out in the marketplace right now. One is more of a, let's say, Uh, pay-for-performance philosophy, and then the other is more of a market compensation philosophy. And then then there's, you know, sort of a blend of these two things. So the purely kind of market-based compensation will kind of tend towards paying everyone at the same level the same thing, but there might be some multipliers for like extra educational attainment or things of this nature, maybe a cost of living kind of multiplier on that. But more or less two people that look exactly the same get paid the same thing. And then the company kind of goes out every year and either does research through surveys or through competitive intelligence to find out kind of like, what's the new thing that we should be paying every person at every level? That's kind of one approach. The other approach is more where there's a range of compensation for for each level and there's a high amount of overlap in these ranges. So maybe there's like a 30% overlap between one level and the level above it. And similarly with the level below. And then 
you kind of figure out through your performance review process how far a person should be moved up into that into that pay range and and that sort of thing so those are kind of the two prevailing philosophies around how compensation ties to framework but i think the really important thing to keep in mind when you're developing a framework is like that is the beginning you are not done uh, and as soon <laughs> as soon as you have written a progression framework you're going to need a bunch of other supporting infrastructure around it on a kind of ticking time clock so make sure that you know what you're getting into kind of as you start into this process because i would say the very first thing you need once you have your framework done is how you evaluate people you're hiring because typically you're taking on a framework because your organization is rapidly scaling and so now I imagine you've got three candidates queued up in your hiring process already and you've just unrolled this framework. Well, how are you going to decide what level each of those candidates comes in at? And so, you know, the very next artifact that needs to follow in very short order is kind of the the hiring rubric and what are you looking for at each level and ideally a standard set of questions that people can choose from that point to attributes in the hiring rubric. And then the next sort of artifact that you need, you probably have a year to produce this artifact is like, how do I get promoted? from yeah. one level to the next. So you got a little bit of time cushion here because I'm assuming once you roll it out, you know, people are going to have some time in their levels before they uh, would think about getting promoted, but you're not going to have that long. So you need to kind of follow with that process, whatever that entails. And then you're also going to have to think about are you doing performance reviews regularly and how that kind of overlays with both the framework and the compensation piece? I wanted to touch on a couple of points you raised there, one on hiring and one on performance. It made me realize that when companies are very quick to write job descriptions, obviously you want to hire somebody, you want to write a job description. And that's the first time you, they're probably thinking about what does good look like for this position. What relationships between job descriptions and frameworks have you seen work well? Is it almost like a one-to-one -one relationship where I can sort of copy and paste from my framework into the job description or actually do they serve quite different purposes and they need to be modified? I would say that the required skills part of the job description should almost be verbatim from what you've written in the framework. And then the like other section, which is nice to have, skills, I think that's where you can kind of put the things we talked about earlier. You know, you've had some experience in C++, you've used Kafka, you've worked on an e-commerce product before, like whatever this set of nice to have things is, you could throw into that section. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And on performance, how do you see the relationship between progression and performance? Because they're obviously related, there's obviously a lot of crossover, but at the same time it's progression is not the same as performance. Do you think about those two slightly differently? Yeah, I do. I do have kind of some nuance in how I think about the two things. I think performance is really like, how are you doing relative to this thing that we've described 
in this ladder that we wrote in a job description that we hired you to do. So like, how are you measuring up against that? And let's say you're hitting 80% or more of what's being described. That's probably solid, solid performance. You know, you get below that and it's like, okay, we probably have some gaps that we'd want to work on, you know, anywhere between 80 and 100% kind of matching that description is great. And then, you know, I think progression is the layered on topic where you're basically thinking about, okay, when are you ready for the next level? And again, I think different companies have different philosophies of this. Some companies you kind of get promoted after you've mastered the the level that you're in and you show some potential to grow okay congratulations you're you're on to the next level like go other companies have a philosophy where it's like okay you have to be demonstrating almost the entirety of the next level already before we're going to put you there because then we feel confident that you're going to succeed at that level. So it's like almost in, you're in that 80 to 100% of the characteristics of the next level and then we'll put you there. Do you have a preference for, for either one? I see wisdom in both. Honestly, I'm not highly opinionated on this topic. I think if you, if you force people to demonstrate 80 to 100% of the next level, then sometimes their level is kind of always trailing their performance and that can be frustrating. On the other hand, if you promote somebody too early, let's say they're only demonstrating kind of 10% of that next level, then you're potentially going to have a rough road kind of through that next year or so of performance as they kind of catch up to You're thrown into the deep end each time yeah yeah i suppose if that becomes part of the company culture that it's okay to be at sort of in the deep end and struggling a little bit in in your first period in the role versus like everybody has to be has to be smashing it at that level it might be perceived differently that's great well sarah thank you so much for taking the time to do this recording and to, to have this conversation there's been some real gems in there both sort of the personal experiences and your thoughts on frameworks and on sort of how they fit into all the different parts of the business. It's been, it's been really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a fun conversation. So thanks for having me back after we did the panel. And where can people find you online if they do want to find out more about what you're up to and uh, follow your thoughts? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to follow me professionally. I'm also on Jiro, the letter D, and then Chatterbox for Twitter. So I can give you that to post as well. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks very much, Sarah. Take care. And there we have it. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to check out Progression, you can just head to progressionapp.com and you can start your free trial from there. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe. We've got a great lineup of guests coming up over the next few months. I think you're really going to enjoy some of the interviews. And give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. That really helps to spread the word. Until next time, see ya!